as a leader, more specifically as a commander, how did you handle mental health issues with those that fell under your command? So I think for for me to answer that, it's what I think majority of the military, in my experience in the Army, uh, treated mental health. It was this taboo conversation or topic, if you will, that you just didn't address. You didn't talk about it. You didn't address. And it wasn't part of your vernacular or your everyday um, thought process. And the reason being is, you know, we had to be ready. We're, we were a deployable force. We had to be ready at any moment's notice and we had to uh, win our nation's war. And mental health has got this such this negative connotation about it that it was this belief that you're going to end your career and it's going to destroy your career if you talk about it. So when I commanded as a troop commander at Fort Hood, Texas, that wasn't part of my conversation at all. I'm sure if I look back and I look closely now, I'm sure that I probably could have seen a lot more signs of mental health and and what was going on. Uh, But I didn't look for those things. A huge part of it is I didn't think it was such an issue, right? When I thought about mental health back then, I looked at mental health from the aspect of, oh, it's just the crazies or it's the the ones that can't handle it. It's the ones that, you know, have all these problems or fill in the blank. But I think the truth is, is that I just didn't understand. I didn't understand because it wasn't something that I could relate to. Because I wasn't looking at myself hard enough. I wasn't looking at the trauma that had happened in my life as an army officer. Everything from the assault um, that took place when I was a lieutenant, when I was deployed, to um, the things I experienced in my three tours of combat. It's just all of those things I didn't take into account. So fast forward, you know, here I am out of the military, but my last year in the military, as I was transitioning out, I had to come to grips with that conversation of mental health. It hit me like a freight train, if you will. I had to have that conversation. And I had to have that conversation because I went down that a very dark road with it. And I had planned a suicide, um, which I've been very open about in that conversation. And I think from when I commanded in, it, as a captain to now, it's different. The conversation is starting to change about mental health, about how senior leaders look at mental health and how open we are with that conversation. I think we still have a ways to go, but it's definitely, you know, more open than when I was a troop commander. According to the Department of Defense, sexual assault is defined as intentional sexual contact, characterized by use of force, threats, intimidation, abuse of authority, or when the victim does not or cannot consent. The next three veterans we hear from are highlights from their military sexual assault stories in each of their episodes. These individuals are United States Army veteran Christy Hinnant, U.S. Navy veteran Heath Phillips, and United States Marine Corps veteran Sharon West Rubino. Um, I checked out of AIT 
you know, was supposed to fly home the next day and I got raped and, um, by, by a civilian. Um, so it wasn't someone in the military and I did all the proper steps that you're supposed to do in society. The cops were called. I did a, that I went to the hospital. I did a rape kick, but the bad thing of it all is that I was flying to Germany two weeks later. So the Ridgeland County Sheriff's Department, um, I felt that to them, they, they didn't do their job because my personal opinion is that I was an easy case for them in the sense that I was leaving. So they just threw my file in a drawer somewhere. I didn't tell my mom or my grandparents who were the ones that raised me. Um, I did let my recruiter know and I begged him not to say anything and he didn't. And I struggled. Um, here I am, this 18 year old young girl that my entire world had been just completely shattered and turned upside down. And now I don't know what to do. And two weeks later, I'm shipped to the other side of the world. I got to Germany and in Germany, you are able to start drinking at 16. So what is someone that has had this traumatic experience happen to them start doing? Well, I would get off work at five and I was downtown at 530 and I would start drinking <clears throat> and I wouldn't roll back and, and the, you know, through the gates until five o'clock the next morning, just in time for PT. And that was my life for roughly a month, a month and a half. Um, and I thought I was doing fairly well. Um, and I was doing that because if I wasn't sleeping at nighttime, I wasn't having any nightmares. I would sleep during my lunch break, um, which was an hour and a half. And then I would go back to work. I thought I was functioning fine. I was getting my work done. No nightmares, no flashbacks. I got this under control. I wasn't thinking about it. And about a month and a half later, that's when I had my first flashback and my world just came crashing down. And I knew that, all right, we have a problem here. My name is Heath Phillips. I'm a United States Navy veteran. I am a military sexual trauma survivor. From my time that I served in the Navy, I spent um, 10 months on board a ship being brutally raped, beaten, and disbelieved by everybody. It started and it lasted for 10 months. After 49 days straight of being assaulted, my family had me go AWOL. We filed a congressional investigation, which founded that it was really happening. They insisted that the perpetrators were um, prosecuted, which in fact, only two of my six rapists were. And they got bad conduct discharges and sentenced to 60 days in the brig. One of my assaulters had a prior history and they transferred him to Pensacola, Florida. My command, they stated that due to my age, I was confused by what was going on. I, I just, I couldn't handle it. My, my mental state was really, um, I was a mess. I had yeah. started drinking. I was 17 years old and drinking like it was water. I just, I was a mental wreck and it was very hard to um, function being on board a ship, being constantly scared. It happened, yes. Um, and then um, I did experiment a couple times with cocaine. 
because, you know, it gets in and out of your system really fast. What they used to say, I don't know if it's true or not. Didn't care. I just wanted to be medicated. I didn't want to deal with life. Um, over the years, though, it, um, I, I went from medicating with just alcohol to medicating with alcohol and pain pills to experimenting with other drugs. Anything I could to uh, not have to, to face reality, I, I guess. I did not realize that I had a mental illness. You know, I didn't know that I had post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't know these things. I just, in my mind was, I don't want to deal with what happened to me. I'm tired of nightmares. I'm tired of flashbacks. I'm tired of anxiety. So my way of coping was to always try to, in some fashion, be, have some type of intoxication. I did not address the sexual assault. I buried it. For me, uh, the self-assured, excelling part of me, I just let that take over. And I did get married. I have two wonderful boys, and uh, they're both grown now. But the marriage did not work out. It was another Marine. I believe he made me feel safe at the time. And he ended up being abusive physically and emotionally. and. Um, for 13 years, and I think this is because I didn't deal with the sexual assault, I felt like I had to fix it. There had to be something I could say or something that I could do to fix this situation. And um, what I didn't understand was that it had affected my self-esteem. And as I stayed in that marriage, it continued to affect it. So I finally just took the kids and left um, after 13 years. And i that's when I, I would say within... Probably the next five years, I started really thinking about maybe I need to deal with this, but I didn't do anything yet because I didn't really feel safe. I felt like I need to take care of my kids. I need to make sure they're on good level ground and I'll deal with me later. So that's kind of what I did. I stayed busy. I got a bachelor's degree. Then I got a master's degree. I ran marathons. I did all kinds of stuff. And then one day uh, when I was working with veterans with another agency, I went up to the VA to talk to one of the social workers there. And she asked me, when are you coming in for yourself? Which kind of just made me stop because I thought, how does she know that there's anything going on with me? I've never told her, but she did. So I actually went up that afternoon and it was... Um, July 3rd, right before 4th of July. And we always have this huge 4th of July party, 70 or 80 people come over. And um, I'm over here telling my story. And I remember I was shaking and cold um, because you, you have a, what they call a som somnolic, you know, you, you, your body reacts as well. Um, and she was saying, well, it's like 90 degrees in here. And I was freezing. And so then she took me to talk to... Um, one of the counselors who told me, you know, go ahead and tell me what's going on. And I said, ma'am, can I have a trash can? And she handed it to me and I threw up for about 10 minutes. Again, more of the physical effect. And I guess I take things and hold them in my gut <laughs> because that's where it seems to affect me all the time. But um, I, after I got done being sick, she said, you've been holding that in for a long time. And I said, yes, I have. It took a while, but I finally did get help. 
in the army, we call them battle buddies. Uh, I don't know if you do the same thing in the Marine Corps, but your fellow Marine that was hit by a suicide bomb, did he end up surviving that? Yeah, good question. So he was a platoon commander. He responded to a sniper threat in a suicide vest. A guy with a suicide vest on ran out of a building, detonated it. He killed a Marine and he blew up my buddy. My buddy lost his leg actually below the knee. And he was rushed to Germany and then to Walter Reed. And if you fast forward like five months later, when we got home from deployment, I was one of the first people that visited him in Walter Reed. Dave actually came and testified at my court martial. I went to his wedding. I mean, we're, we were close. And Dave must have undergone over 100 surgeries. And even a year later, they went and took it above the knee. He had probably a hundred ball bearings in his body that had to work their ways Wait. out. He would hit a clostomy bag outside of his body. I mean, he was, he was in bad shape, but Dave is just like a success story. So two years later, after he had healed and had the prosthetic and worked his way back out, he actually remained in the Marine Corps and deployed to Afghanistan twice as a company commander and as a general's aide. And then he ended up medically retiring as a major. So he was always kind of an inspiration to me of someone that loved the Marine Corps and wanted to deploy again, even after a situation like that. That's amazing. I think it's great to have people like that in our lives, whether it's personally, professionally, or both, that we can look up to who display that, um, that grit to push forward no matter what, because they really are an inspiration the first question I'd want to ask you is one that I think many who have worn the uniform would want to know. And that is, prior to you taking this issue to social media, did you take it to your chain of command? If so, what was their response? No, prior to that, I didn't address it through the formal chain of command. I thought about it. I calculated that had I gone through the formal chain of command, that I would have never gotten the public conversation and discussion that I wanted. There were multiple times after the fact where I requested masks, I requested redress, formal processes, tried to prefer charges. So on like five different forums after the fact, I tried to go through the formal chains of command and they were all denied for various reasons. So. I look at those as examples of thinking you can go through the system doesn't always work the way you think it will. And mm -hmm. I knew going into this that it would probably work out like that. So this was important to me. And I decided to just make the statement publicly right off the bat. Fast forward a little bit to... Uh, the end of August of 2010, um, our unit was doing these missions where it took us away from our main base and we, we were stationed someplace else. And we were doing these uh, missions where we were flying out to these villages where there was suspected Taliban activity. And we were doing a joint mission with the Afghan army. And we had, we were tasked with training them with some of our techniques and some of our uh, uh, ways of doing things for clearing buildings and urban operations and, and stuff like that. And it was a very difficult 
uh, task to do because it was during the month of Ramadan, which is a Muslim holiday where they, uh, from sunrise to sunset, they don't eat or drink or anything like that. Um, and they only eat and drink at night after the sun has gone down. And so in August in Afghanistan, it's incredibly hot. And our training time was during the day. And if you haven't eaten or drink anything all day, you're not really going to be up for going out and doing training in, in the 120 plus degree heat, right? So uh, we'd maybe get an hour out of them at, at most uh, before they just wanted to go find a shady, cool spot to hang out and, and just rest for the rest of the day until they can finally eat or drink something. Um, so it, it, that was hard. That was, it was almost like herding cats. Uh, like it just trying to get them all in one place and actually doing something, uh, especially with the language barrier, you know, we were working through a translator. It, it just, it was hard. Uh, it was really difficult. Um, but then we would go out on, on these missions and we'd fly out to these remote villages and the Afghan army didn't at the time didn't have any night vision goggles, so we'd have to wait till sunrise to go into these villages. Um, of course, the loud helicopters landing on the mountaintops outside of the villages probably gave away the fact that the Americans were coming in. And so whoever was there likely skirted out in, in the middle of the night and, uh, and got away. So a lot of the times we'd go into the villages and, and we wouldn't really find a whole lot. Um, but it was still a useful exercise because it still gave the Afghan army a chance to put into practice the stuff that we were trying to teach them. Um, and, and we were there, I like to make the, uh, uh, analogy that we were there sort of as the driver's ed instructor where uh, the, the Afghan army was behind the wheel. They were going and, and searching door to door, going through the houses and everything. Um, but we were there to pump the brakes if things got a little out of control and we we're there to help out uh, if if need be. So um, so fortunately for, for a lot of these uh, these missions, whoever we were looking for, they, they escaped and it didn't get out of control, so so we didn't have that to, to really worry about. We'll be right back. This episode is powered by Acuity Benefit Consulting. Retaining military veteran talent is critical to your bottom line, so give them a specialized resource for the benefit that they value most, VA Disability Compensation. Acuity provides an in-depth one-on-one educational session on VA disability benefits curated to the needs of your veterans. Go to www.acuitybenefitconsulting.com to learn more. Again, that is www.acuitybenefitsconsulting.com. So even even after going AWOL, how did you how did you was just drinking was the only solution that you had when you were AWOL? 
Um, when I first happened, yes. Um, and then um, I did experiment a couple times with cocaine because, you know, it gets in and out of your system really fast, what they used to say. I don't know if it's true or not. Didn't care. I just wanted to be medicated. I didn't want to deal with life. Um, over the years, though, it, um, I, I went from medicating with just alcohol to medicating with alcohol and pain pills to experimenting with other drugs, anything I could to uh, not have to, to face reality, I, I guess. Um, I did not realize that I had a mental illness. You know, I didn't know that I had post-traumatic stress disorder. I didn't know these things. I just, in my mind was, I don't want to deal with what happened to me. I'm tired of the nightmares. I'm tired of flashbacks. I'm tired of anxiety. So my way of coping was to always try to, in some fashion, be have some type of intoxication. Usually where people go wrong or where they have a struggle is they don't know them. So, you know what I mean? They don't mm -hmm. just take and do self-discovery or not even self-discovery, like uh, self-education or self-development, reading up on, you know, what what makes it so until you can understand how your body works you can't combat how your body works no the boards are competition boards are stressful i think any board is stressful really any kind of board and then if you add aspect to it that's also adds extra stress i don't know i think i've I did competition boards maybe one time. It was in NATO. Other than mm -hmm. that, I was not, not a me thing. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, so then I had six months to transition out. Well, you know, just go through the class, the TAPS class of learning how to write a resume, get my affairs in order you know, transitioning from the position I was in. It was just all these things that, you know, six months goes by really quick. And I should have been prepared, but I was not because I wasn't, I was really feeling sorry for myself. I wasn't ready mentally at all. I just, I don't know. I, I think I was just trying to mentally prepare for what was to come next. And I didn't know how. You know, I, I really didn't. I was, I just kept going to work, kept doing my job. It, it really was just spent trying to do everything to get out. You know, you have to still turn in your gear. You still have to, you have to do all the, the things to do to out process for, for good. It wasn't like I was moving to another duty assignment. I was getting out. It was very emotional. It was a very difficult thing to do. It was really hard because... I missed it. I missed having to get up. I say having to because that was what we did. We had to get up and go to PT. So I missed that structure. I missed the camaraderie, putting on that uniform. So I, I really, I went through a really d dark depression. I really did because I felt like I lost my identity. I didn't know who I was anymore. I was no longer Major Wittenberger. I was just in that. And then I was a military spouse with a dependent ID card, which was really hard for me. It was really weird to 
be in that position because I just never knew how and I never really prepared myself for it. So you know, I, I, I really, I, I did, I sulked for like six months. I didn't write a resume. I didn't really look for a job. I literally sat on the couch every day and woke up just to take the kids to school and come back and, and not have a sense of purpose. And so it took me a long time to change roles, put on the different hat and figure out how to be just a mom and not the mom spouse soldier. And, you know, it was just, it, it was really hard. So after, you know, six months or so, I, that's when I decided to start writing my thoughts down because I did not feel like I had an outlet. I had no one to talk to. I didn't think like anybody that anybody could understand. And I really wanted the pain to go away because it was really, it really hurt. Like in my soul, it really, really hurt to try to figure out what was I going to do? Cause I had no plan anymore. I thought I knew what I wanted but I felt completely lost. It's called Born to Inspire. Can you imagine a child so impatient? He couldn't wait for nine months of gestation. Entering the world before his time, scarlet fever, Christ in his arms. Doctors, nurses, hospital staff, the extended family on his behalf. From kindergarten to birth, one memory in mind, hospital, shots, milk, Christmas is all he can find. Ridiculed, bullied, abused, and abandoned, ninth grade never completed, yet there's a master on his mantle. Army, the path to a better education he never expected, the crossroads. Of molestation. God and church, the drugs of his choice, witchcraft and marriage, abuse, divorce, love and lies, happiness denied, cancer, surprise! Yet, he's alive. Nine to five, laid off, goodbye, too proud to quit, men don't cry. Off to the war, the answers came. Support his family, God's word proclaimed. DNA in the shadow, cancer at the door. Not again, God, haven't we been here before? Life in the balance. How much can one take? Desires to escape, held up by the weight of the responsibilities on his plate. Now, for those that may be thinking, Pastor Jeff, you're just singing to the choir. Well, the purpose of my life is to inspire. This is Pastor Jeff, and I inspire others to move from the space of a victim to the place of a victor. For all of the listeners today, I want to know if you're ready to move from being a victim. We always talk about looking out for for veterans because what would you tell somebody who says yeah i look out for the signs and symptoms what would you tell that person when it comes to 
you know, confronting a person who might be suicidal, even though they don't look like it. Yeah. I always say just plant seeds. Like I openly talk about mental health and any type of situation where like, even if I get the smallest feeling, even if they haven't said anything, even if I get the smallest feeling that this person might um, be struggling with something, because generally speaking, people don't lean towards me unless they have some type of um, mental uh, injury going on right then. Um, and so I just try to be open and approach people with kindness. And a lot of people that are dealing with some type of mental health issue, they're going to be extremely awkward. So that's going to put you off to begin with. And so if you just can take that breath and lean in with kindness, rather than just like, what's wrong with this person? Like, that's, that's generally speaking, like they're trying to inquire about something that they weren't taught to talk about as a kid and as an adult. So they're just like, they're the awkward kid or they might be like the awkward adult now. And like, if we just can always just approach people with kindness and like when those months do come up of like mental health awareness, suicide awareness, people watch you. And so like what you put on your Facebook feed or whatever else, whatever you're putting in the world as your message, people see that. And if you can plant seeds of kindness out there, and let people know like, hey, if you ever need anything, I'm here for you. Those seeds, like you don't know which ones are going to grow until you plant them. And so like when you start planting those, like even if you go up to like a complete like just a acquaintance person or maybe it's your brother, sister or something, just say like, hey, I know you had a lot in your life. If you ever need to talk, let me know. Um, if, if you have that approach to life and that person like all of a sudden they break down one day, they're going to pick up the phone and call you. And a perfect example of that is like, my sister's always been that person for me. And she's, she's like, we didn't get along as kids, like normal siblings, but she, like when I was struggling and like, I was like, I don't know how to tell my family. Like, how do you tell your family? You're like mentally just like crumbling and um, my sister's always been kind to me. Like we didn't really talk about mental health, but I knew like she wasn't gonna, because we have a shared like traumatic past. Like I knew she wasn't going to judge me. And so like, when I told her, she just like, it's, it's okay, Kim, like go get whatever treatment you need. Like I like whatever you need right now, just take care of you. And, uh, we, I just want you here. But when you have those kind people in your life, those are the people you turn to and you always want to be that kind person that someone like when they think about you, they don't think of this hardened warrior hardened person, like just like, Hey, yeah, they're, they're a badass, but they're also like, they have a very soft heart and I know they're going to support me. Thank you. And have a nice day.